<laughs> oh, you took off live awful quick. Hello, guys. We're back. Uh, 305.25, me and Matthew Gates. Hopefully, uh, after things get rolling up here, we can uh, chat will work again. Uh, if you are loading up and you can see this, uh, please uh, give us some uh, remarks in chat. Let us know that it is working. Uh, hopefully it's working. It's weird. You know what a bummer is, too, is a lot of things, if you double up like that, uh, a lot of times it won't send out that second notification. It's like you only get one every so often. And I am sense. not seeing anything in chat. How weird is that? Yeah, me neither. How, how odd. Hmm. Maybe a server side on YouTube. Wow. I can't believe that. Can't believe it. Well, I guess we're on our own. No worries there. So, well, internet pest management can be a bugger. So, I guess we'll just work our way through some of the problems that we have. First of all, I think I believe you did have. We were able to score at least one question via IG. Uh, that we could probably take off with and then kind of maybe uh, run with that after that. I'm fine with that. Everybody's still texting me, telling me, chat's not working. Chat's not I don't know what the heck uh, could have happened between last night and today. Yeah, if anybody else watch other shows, is anybody else having problem with their chat, or is it just me? I just can't, like we were talking about before the show there, believe that, you know, they would start by censoring chat. You would think they would start by censoring me. <laughs> I don't know. It seems silly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't. Well, you're uh, answering that question. I'm gonna try to bring up my YouTube settings here and see. If Answer. Wait, which YouTube. which question am I answering here? Uh, I can't remember. I they I know they said uh, they sent you a DM on Instagram. Oh, they that's right. The one on the, when I posted on Instagram. That's true. I had sent it to them earlier. I can bring it up, actually. It's the power of the internet that we have right now. That people can direct, that I can directly interact with people in that way. It's kind of surreal still to me. And it's, and it's great as a, as a teaching tool. And also, um, you know, just to get information like we were saying in the earlier live stream. Uh, but the question was about, oh, it was kind of interesting. I can't believe I forgot about it. Um, it was about like a sonication device for patent to be used against Varroa mites, which are um, a mite that parasitizes honeybees. And I guess it was really, it was a really interesting concept, but the question was about whether or not like, um, like this would be possible to be used like in a, in a cultivation agricultural setting for like, you know, spider mites for example or something like this and i'm sort of skeptical about not not necessarily the efficacy or the usefulness of like sonication as an integrated pest management 
um, technique. That would be kind of like a, fit, a really neat and novel sort of um, uh, physical control. And there are studies that show that sonication that like produces vibrations in a plant can like interfere with um, the ability for insects that communicate through like vibrations in that way. Like they might like make small vibrations that travel along the, the branch or something like this. You know, that if they communicate that way to like find mates, then you can essentially make it impossible for them to do that. And that can disrupt them and that can have a great effect. Uh, but there are other ways too that are being investigated anyways. And this patent showed, I guess, a use where like, if they had the right frequency, um, the, you know, I searched for like the actually like the mode of action essentially. And the patent doesn't really say with a lot of certainty. There's like a supposition that like, I guess it causes some sort of physiological response that makes the varroa mites like be um, disrupted. And I guess they don't like want to be around the, the, the frequency, the sonic um, frequency. But I would want to know a little bit more because what if I, what if I misapply it? Or what if I use it in a way that's not ecologically conscientious. Um, we already know about things like sound pollution and light pollution, which is a huge problem in agriculture, but also just like in general, like human activity interaction with nature. And so I think sonication could have some other like unforeseen consequences if it's not applied with a little bit of care. And part of that care is just understanding how it works and how it functions. And I look forward to seeing a lot more of that kind of research in the future because it could be a really helpful tool that can be combined with something else really novel and interesting um, so that we can move away from like, uh, you know, traditional systemic chemistries and um, just kind of the overuse of even just regular spray products in general. Because if you don't have to expose people to those substances, even if they're softer, I think that's a better thing in general. Did you figure it out? So what? No, no, no. Everything says it's a go. And like I said yesterday, I didn't, or earlier, I didn't change anything from yesterday. It's, it's pretty wild. I, I just don't get it. I really just don't get it. Yeah, I don't know uh, either. So, so what is some of the most, com what is the most common uh, pest problem that you see? What is the most you know, invasive, the common most top of the list problem that you see? I'd say that like, probably it's a tie between, um, from, from a perspective of like how, like just most commonly encountered, I would say the most commonly encountered sort of arthropod pests at least is like thrips or maybe two spot spider mite because, or, and specifically like the Western flower thrips because both of them are huge generalist pests of tons of different crops. And um, a lot of them have resistance traits. Um, they're really good at uh, nullifying the immune response of plants and modulating the immune response of plants. Um, in the case of Western flower thrips, it's oftentimes a vector of many viruses. Not None of them currently for cannabis, but uh, you know we'll see how things go and develop over time. Um, nature sometimes finds a way. Um, 
So they're just everywhere and they're on everything. So it's very easy for them to quickly go into cannabis in that way. So that's just a matter of course for them. Um, I would say that even considering that cannabis safe is getting a whole lot more um, common in uh, at least in North America. And I would, uh, I would imagine that that has a lot to do with just the increase in, in cultivation in general um, and the passing of material and sort of, unfortunately, sometimes low biosecurity um, procedure and protocol. And then um, maybe if we're being pedantic, I would say that like maybe botrytis or powdery mildew would also be a really great example from the, um, well, the pedantic answer was a cannabis cryptic virus because it's just, it's expected to be in a lot of hemp varieties um, based on at least some initial research about it, uh, but it's asymptomatic. But another example for like fungi would be like botrytis and powdery mildews, like lettuce powdery mildew. Um, and botrytis is in tons of other plants too. So for that other reason, it's kind of a universal pathogen. It's, it's a pretty wide, broad spread um, host range at least. So when you, when you do come up with an infection, let's say aphids, uh, it's usually by the time you see it, they're usually pretty well widespread. They're usually in the, the medium they're on the, you know, they're under the leaves, they're all over the plant. So what, in your opinion, uh, what's the best way to go, uh, go about that first initial, uh, attack or defensive attack, I should say on a plant. Uh, look, we'll, I guess we'll call it out, like say in the veg stage, you know, we have to start out somewhere. So if we're in the veg stage and we see some, uh, aphids or thrips, uh, what would be, your best out line of defense to start out with should we be treating the plant and the soil or uh, what do you think in your opinion how should we first attack that if you have like a if you have like a cannabis aphid population that's uh, established in your crop then hopefully you're already scouting a lot um, at a regular interval and uh, at a sample that a sample size that's enough that you can actually get a pretty good sample and read about what's going on. Uh, but if you're, and this is what I'm talking kind of in a commercial perspective, but if you're doing it from a personal perspective and you only have a few plants, yeah, it's a lot easier for some people to, to kind of achieve a census of like hundred percent plants uh, checked. And that's helpful because when you do find a problem, hopefully you recognize it in as a very early stage. I've, um, you know, uh, aphids reproduce really, really quickly. They're actually born pregnant and they reproduce clonal offspring and most of them are female. And most of the, in almost all the cases, people only interact with the female um, uh, sex of the insect. So what you gotta do is you gotta kill them quickly or else they'll reproduce like mad. And if you haven't been crop scouting, then that might actually be what, like as you described, you might find quite a bit on like a single plant on the stem or on the undersides of the leaves. Um, for me, I think that in, in veg, things as simple as like, um, as like an azadiractin product can be useful. Um, I've had people, I've had people do really well with just simply like cutting off the infested, the infested leaves or other tissues and just pinching back. Um, sometimes it's not really a viable strategy, of course, 
but it can be really useful and cost effective, you know what I mean, especially at a smaller scale. Um, there's no real reason to be super um, afraid of the cannabis aphid. As far as we know, it doesn't affect any viruses or any other sort of problems. Um, aphids do tend to sort of modulate the immune system of a plant when they're feeding. And that can be a sort of a silent, invisible problem for the plant physiology. But in my experience, plants usually bounce back and I don't see any like long lasting effects anyways, at least if you get them early. You can also use biocontrols like lace wings and some people have effects with uh, lady beetles, but I don't really recommend them personally. And there are some lady beetles that you can get that are actually hugely invasive and problematic. Uh, so uh, what about uh, problems in flower? Let's say it, we didn't, they didn't catch it until uh, flower stages there, which uh, is always terrible to see. Anybody that's come across that as knows it's just heartbreaking to see, especially when, you know, that's, it's not everybody has a, a perpetual or runs out of perpetual. So if you're running a monocrop, and you see problems like that, uh, it can be devastating, uh, that's for sure. So if you happen to not catch it till flowers, do you have some solutions for that stage of the game as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you have many less um, options, of course, depending on your situation. If you're, at a, if you're at a commercial scale, it really depends on where you're producing and what you're producing and what's allowed. Um, it's hard to kind of speak on that too generally at least um, but obviously softer chemistries you wouldn't want to use like the sulfur I had just mentioned that would be a very bad idea um, if you're applying something like well, well one of the things you can do is you if it's kind of a, a unfortunate thing to do but sometimes you can you are much better affected by taking out the physical tissue itself just pinching back cutting back even if it's in flower that's perhaps the most cost effective if you only have like a small hot spot. And for some people who basically have PTSD when it comes to like cannabis aphids and uh, their interactions with uh, pests and how, how, well, how virulent they can be, um, some people find that to be an acceptable um, option. And like you mentioned too, if you're growing in a perpetual cycle, then it's very easy for you to get into this sort of habit of kind of ex almost like accepting their presence or at the very least not being able to have an option that's um, more effective that could be available to you. Uh, so what happens is that they just kind of keep reinfesting the same material and pretty soon you pretty much have behaviors all the time and you'd have to use some other way to um, get rid of them or quality control post-harvest, but it's very difficult to do that kind of a thing. Um, Bouveria bastiana is a, is a intimate pathogenic fungus that I'm a really big fan of and people who follow my content are already aware of that. And in some places that's totally an acceptable thing to use. I would be, con I would be considerate of the possibility that um, some of the products have uh, petroleum um, as a petroleum uh, additive. I don't remember what it does exactly, but you got to be careful about those sorts of things. But if you're in a residential um, uh, area, 
then your options are still kind of limited too. And I think a lot of things people would normally use. Uh, some of the products have. Oh, is it on? No, I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so you don't really have, I mean, some of the products that might be available to you, like some people might think of things like from Home Depot, they're like, um, like imidacloprid or, or, or other sorts of like kind of noxious compounds. They shouldn't be using things like that kind of anyways. Um, but uh, I do feel like when you have a small crop and you crop scout, you can, you, you can make use of some of the more low tech options like just simply pinching back or, um, or quarantining, for example. That can be useful too if you only have it on one plant and you wanna like get at it, like hand pick them off or do something like that. Um, I certainly use it on my plants, uh, not just not cannabis, but like other sorts of plants. And um, I feel like that's a nice organic way to go about it. Although it's of course a lot more difficult to do at scale. I had actually not realized that it was a fungus until I was listening to a book on mycology the other day and they had mentioned it and talked about it a little bit. I went, really? I didn't realize it was a fungus, to be honest with you. Uh, but the one thing they did uh, when they mentioned it said that it, when you used it, it was one of those things that you kind of had to reapply uh, kind of on a steady pace because it was difficult to to keep going or it only lived for so long or was I good for so long. So how long do you have to treat or how often do you have to treat with it when you're using it? It definitely depends. Um, the key for most entomopathogenic fungi, um, another example would be like in the same sort of realm, you have Isaria fumosorosia, which is the active um, ingredient in uh, PFR97 and Vuveri Bassiana of like Botanigard and other sorts of products like that. Um, those are pretty, they probably wouldn't characterize it this way, but I feel like they're rather equivocal in a lot of ways. Um, no matter what though, you wanna get as many, as much infective material on target as possible because it's the, it's that infective colonization material, the propagules um, that are gonna be doing the effect that you want. And in specific, you want to have um, canidia if possible, uh, the actual asexual spores, because some propagules that are used in products aren't necessarily going to be really reliable infective material. And so that's why they use the word propagule instead of like a different word like spore or canidia, which is kind of uh, semantic at that point. But um, with their application, I've had people have a lot of good success with really aggressive applications. Um, the label rate will depend on the product, of course. But um, you look at research reports that talk about Bouveri Bassiana effects on various pest species, and you're seeing amounts that I think are pretty equivalent to most labeled rates. So if you stick with the label rate, you're probably going to have a pretty good effect. If the population's really large, though, um, and I would characterize that as maybe maybe a density of like something like 20 to 50 per leaf, something like really egregious. Um, you might have to apply quite a bit. Um, and if you're in flower or if you're an early flower, I think that would be kind of even more difficult because all spray applications for the most part 
that are um, that you would want to use on cannabis that aren't systemic or translaminar, um, they would they benefit from coverage. You need to get full coverage. If you have a plant that's really dense and branched and has many leaves, not only is, are those a lot of hiding spaces and a lot more tissue for the insects to feed on, but it's also a lot more difficult to apply some sort of a spray. Have you ever had that ex uh, that experience yourself? I have not, I have not. Yeah, I know in commercial settings, some people that I've worked with have found that it's really the only way that they can render control. It's that they have to, they have to cut and they have to take away a lot of the branches and the, the foliage and the lower canopy. And when they do that, they can really get the spray nozzles um, in the, on the ventral side of the leaf and um, really dislodge them physically, but also uh, spread whatever you're trying to apply. It's lonely here without chat. It is, it is, it's so tough. This is the first time I've ever done an episode without the live part of it. And it, I'm, I'm A, struggling to try to fix it, and then A, trying to, it's just weird without it. I, I've checked every setting that I could possibly set it to look at. And even I've had people texting me like advice settings to check <laughs> as we're talking people are texting me like check yeah. this check this yeah and, uh, nothing yeah. Aaron the grower which who so I mentioned him earlier um, he had also confirmed for me about 20 minutes ago that it's not working still and uh, Jack Greenstock also told me in the beginning as well so that's sort of unfortunate maybe they can suggest some questions it is, I maybe that can be our extended chat <laughs> Well, I know he said, uh, I got one. He, he said, I want to talk to this guy about pollinator plants and companion plants as beneficial, uh, good. Uh, so I guess that was leading into his question. So TC, uh, if you want to text me and finish the texting me that question, that'd be uh, great. Yeah, definitely. Um, I wonder if he's referring to like the pepper banker plants that I talk about sometimes where you are counting on them to make copious amounts of pollen for the omnivorous biocontrol agents like the minute pirate bug or the various predatory mites of the type three um, uh, category like Swirsky and Cucumerus and that sort of a thing. It sounds about the right along the line of, uh, sounds right, to be honest with you. So uh, let's just run down that rabbit hole. I mean, what kind of uh, plants can we use for IPM and how do they work? Well, some people would tell you that they don't work very well generally. And other people would tell you that it depends on what you're using. I'm kind of in the second category there. There are a lot of um, attributions that are made about companion plants that I feel lack a lot of credibility, uh, empirically at least. But there's also a lot of interesting newer research that comes out that 
um, maybe just paint the concept of companion plants or using plants other than the crop plant that you're growing. At the, and that's how I like describe it and sort of define it. Um, using it in sort of a nuanced way, like there are ways to make certain things work. And it's really just a question of, is it cost beneficial for you and your specific cultivation context, which is kind of the answer to every single IPM question, uh, if I'm being intellectually honest there. Uh, so from the pollen perspective, the reason why I chose the banker plants that I did, which are the exploding ember uh, pepper plants that are an ornamental cultivar and they grow really slow, unfortunately. And that's what Russell Pace of the um, Cannabis Horticultural Association uh, became very aware of when he propagated them. Um, but they produce flowers. They produce many more flowers because they're meant to be kind of a pretty ornamental, which is beneficial for us because you get two things. The first thing you get is you get pollen uh, you get many more flowers that produce pollen and they last for a very long period of time. So the pollen reserves are being constantly refreshed, um, just like the nectaries would be in a plant that you're trying to use to attract nectarvores, which are a lot of um, parasitoid wasps, a lot of flies that are parasitoids as well. Um, what are another, what's another good example? Well, I mean, a lot of butterflies and moths, which are pests, also will like nectaries too. But that's why it kind of works out for the wasps that parasitize the caterpillars, right? They, um, they get to feed on the nectar, which is high in sugar, and then they get to go and parasitize a caterpillar. And the cycle continues. Um, so yeah, there are some pollens that are beneficial for predatory mites in particular. They allow them to be more resistant to ultraviolet radiation, which is very damaging to mites. Um, and those mites in particular, because they're so small. This is actually why uh, two-spot spider mites are so, um, uh, well, it's why they like to hang around on the ventral side of the leaves because they're also kind of damaged by the high UV intensity of the sun in places where they're not shielded anyways. And there's a lot of organisms that are like that, to be honest. Um, so peach and tea pollen were the two pollens that I was just talking about. But there are other pollens that are actually straight up toxic to predatory mites. And I think um, silver pine is one example. Um, or was it, was it silver pine or was it, gosh, I have a video on my YouTube channel where I recorded this uh, information. So if you check out my predatory mite playlist, the phytoceity, then uh, you'll come across that video and that research report. I try to make all of my integrated pest management techniques at least somehow have an empirical basis um, and, and at the very least have like multiple sources that are sort of um, peer reviewed and also seem to be relevant that aren't necessarily just from a laboratory or something like that. So with greenhouse trials or field trials um, or maybe ecological theoretical research sometimes when it's really applicable, uh, I just think it's really important to like kind of base what you're doing on something that's kind of um, outside of yourself as like an external um, litmus test, you could say. But something in their bleeding edge. I'm definitely interested in using something like a banker plants and that, uh, especially if I were in the outdoor area, it would only make sense to utilize that space and, you know, natural efforts like that 
first and foremost before we bring in anything else. It just makes perfect sense. Is it is easy to incorporate them on the indoors as it is the outdoors, or is it just kind of a waste of time to try to uh, to incorporate that method on the indoor? I feel like it's worth it. Um, I know people who grow uh, indoor and they've used the very banker plants that I'm referring to, and it worked out very well for them for their predatory mites and their minute parent bugs. Um, I would say though that it's understandable that somebody might think it's a waste of time if they feel like they can make way more money if their space requirements are very small. And uh, on the on one on one edge of the spectrum, there's the understanding that for some people, if they have an increased what's called plant load in their um, in their greenhouse or whatever, so if they're plant density per like square meter is very, very dense. And, and then the plants themselves are very, very bushy. That has a lot of consequences for your integrated pest management that you have to sort of deal with. I already mentioned the difficulty in getting complete coverage. You also have literally that much more space and tissue for the plants to become infested in the first place or, or um, infected or something like this. But if you're growing, but it might be useful for you to implement uh, banker plants that have pollen, for example, um, especially if you don't have to sacrifice your plant load. But for a lot of people, they make the mistake of sort of um, uh, over-egging the pudding with how much plants they put per meter squared. And then they run into problems like disease and with diseases and with uh, humidity and temperature issues. And also some path, well, pathogens are often facilitated through um, hosts being very close to each other. So you can run the problem, if you, especially if you don't have a uh, sophisticated integrated pest management sort of process, um, or if you're just not regularly looking at your plants, then you do run the risk that a pathogen can infect the plant and then infect multiple other plants before you kind of notice the, the real symptoms, especially really nasty systemic things like Fusaria and uh, Septoria. Well, Septoria is not so bad, but uh, Fusarium is pretty, pretty gnarly. Uh, most people don't recover from it. Um, yeah, so I think that answers the question. Yeah, uh, by the way, he said you nailed it. He texted me and he was like, he nailed it. <laughs> okay. well, I'm glad to hear it. Isn't that, that's so cool that, I, that we still get to have this sort of interaction right? uh, sort of vicariously. That's the bummer of it is because this one, this was a good episode. I completely like didn't even plan for this episode. Totally right. didn't even plan for this episode. I was like, yeah, Chad, Chad's going to have tons of questions. Not even going to have to put a thought into this one. This one's going to run itself. That's what, that's right. seriously <laughs> what I thought today. <laughs> right. Chad's got this. It's going to run itself. Hey, Jen didn't have, show up tonight. Do you have problems? <laughs> oh, you do? Well, great. Like, here's a guy to help you out with that. But that's, that's too bad. You even took the initiative, yeah. and now you're being punished for it. Yeah, that's kind of funny that you bring that up. Yeah, put, make that post today on Instagram. Bring Get your questions ready and bring them to the show tonight because we're not going to be able to see them and we're not going to answer that shit. 
Well, I guess we could. I mean, is, are there any other questions on the post? No, right? Or are there? Uh, they went directly to you. I think you took the one question that was there. I think right, Let's see if I've got any. What is uh, John? Johnny Candacee would like to know uh, what do you think about SNS 209 and its all natural systemic pest control and how would you apply it to plants? Is what, uh, I feel if I'm remembering, if I'm remembering the product correctly, I feel like it's kind of expensive and not very cost effective. That's like my sort of initial perspective, but um, I just, I want to make sure that I'm remembering the right product when I say that. Um, but like, I think that it's also equivocal to a lot of other sort of, um, sort of suffocant oils that are meant to be kind of like broadly effective because they kill the the target in that manner. Because I think it is a, isn't that a soybean oil? I just I'm not for sure to be honest with you. I've never used that product in particular. I rarely use, I, remember, I definitely recognize the name, but I rarely utilize that product in particular, which maybe is like also, I mean, I guess you did ask what my opinion about it is, and I don't have a big, strong opinion about it one way or the other. You gotta love friends. You gotta love friends. Do they That's give you another question say. or do they figure out the yeah. problem? Oh. No, they're saying for some reason when they try to fucking put something in that uh, they're saying it's an error sending. Like when they try to type in a message, there's a sending error going on, hmm. which is really weird. But uh, Mr. Smiley says, when using predator mites, are there any uh, sprays that can be used and are safe for the predators? That's a good question. Definitely. So I already talked about two that would be really useful in most cases, and that's your Blueberry Vasapana and your Isaria fumosorosia. Um, a lot of biopesticides are pretty safe with other biocontrols, um, unless at least like the fungi are. You, although you will run into some problems with some of the soft-bodied um, insects that are used for biocontrols, like um, uh, I think Dicyphus would be one example. Um, the minute pirate bug, Phorias, would be an example. Um, your if you if you use like assassin bugs, I think there are some some insectaries that sell um, assassin bugs as well. Although I don't use them very often myself at all, actually. But I know people who do use them and they feel like it's, it's helpful for like caterpillars sometimes, but it hasn't been my experience personally. Um, so all of those are like soft-bodied uh, insects that would be um, potentially affected by like blueberry bassiana leaves. That being said, predatory mites like Swirsky and Cucumaris and Phalassus and uh, Californicus and Persimilis, all of those predatory mites, they generally aren't negatively affected by the very Bassiana and they tend to be able to, and I have videos on my YouTube channel that cite this research, that they're actually able to like, um, sort of, they can practice hygiene, they're able to clean themselves off. And um, I think with Persimilis in particular, if I remember the study correctly, 
the only real problem is that it um, caused them to have to slow down and clean themselves off after an application. So, I mean, that reduced their efficacy for a very short period of time, but I guess that could be, um, you know, that's an inefficiency that you could eliminate by simply ordering the applications a little bit differently. So when would you uh, reach for uh, natural uh, pest management uh, bio, you know, like a bio attack versus uh, sprays? Uh, would when when is your voice when to implement uh, the you know the bugs versus sprays? It really depends on the pest. So um, for me. I like to establish, I like to establish biocontrol agents like the predatory mite Amblyspheus scorsky or Neocilis cucumerus because they can be established in the crop with a pollen source when there's no prey, like the banker plant I was talking about earlier. Um, or you can use some sort of pollen product or purchase one and apply it in your crop. Uh, the reason why I like to use those is because they're kind of like a living battalion of soldiers. They're just constantly crawling around your plants looking for food to eat. And they're a great, what I would like to call passive control. You don't have to do anything except for purchase the bugs and apply the bugs correctly. And it's true. Um, you can't use them everywhere. Uh, some people, there are limitations with their logistics or they're expensive or uh, they become outsourced or not outsourced. Um, uh, there are supply line issues where there's quality control problems or they get, um, um, or, they, or you, you know, they don't have any supply because they've sold all their mites or something like this. So there are issues with biocontrols that you have to be aware of. But like with the predatory mites that I mentioned, they can be a passive control for some really noxious pests like russet mites and broad mites, which are incredibly destructive and can cause total crop loss. Now that's a that's a pet that's a pest that's definitely worth having a constant stream of biocontrols to avert. Um, and I've used them in many other crops too, and they're really useful. Um, just generally, but you gotta have to reapply them, you have to crop scout, you have to evaluate that they're actually in your area, that they're actually on your plants, they're surviving. There are life stages you can become aware of, like their eggs, their nymphs, or rather their larvae in their adult form. And also being able to distinguish them from like mold mites, which are sometimes used as feeders and sachets, a little baggies if you've seen them used in that way. Um, and they can also, the mold mites can also be found ubiquitously in the environment. Uh, people will freak out about mold mites, think that they're a huge problem when they're usually not. Yeah. How many different types of mites are there? Tons. You mean like Akari, the mite, the mite group in general? There's, there's probably you know huge numbers that we haven't even described yet. Uh, mites are really, really historically they've always been very difficult to categorize taxonomically. That's because a ton of them are well, they're really small, really small, even smaller than a lot of insects. And so it's hard to get a lot of samples. Most people haven't devoted a lot of time to mites, because, especially pre, pre, prior to the microscope, right? Because uh, they're just so hard to observe. Um, 
and it's kind of hard to replicate their ecology in some ways, although we're getting a lot better at that. So with massive genomic sampling and uh, sort of the advent of the omics research in general, I think we'll see a lot of like really cool um, evolution and taxonomy revival. But right now it's kind of hard and laborious to do that kind of research. And, um, that kind of leaves us some problems for us when it comes to um, pests and their identification. But I would say that probably agricultural acrology is maybe the most vibrant uh, sector of, of acrology. Maybe medical acrology would be a little bit more um, uh, like lively. <laughs> so, uh, depending on the year, I mean, can't, uh, you know, first step sometimes in an infestation be uh, as simple as being able to take the plant if you're able to do that outdoors and, you know, hose off as much as you can before you actually, you know, bring it back in and begin your spray and uh, uh, bio attacks there. It, uh, I think I think a lot of people actually skip that step if you know available you know if available you know season available right now I sure wouldn't be taking plants outside and trying to spray them off if I had a problem but if you know the time was right and it was summertime and I had some type of infestation I think that would be one of my first go-to's before I actually started spraying chemicals in the garden I think I would you know take them outside and try to spray as much stuff off with the natural water before I actually started you know, implementing sprays and stuff. Uh, is, that, is that something you would suggest as, as well? Or maybe even if go as far as, you know, uh, spraying, taking them outside and spraying them with a high pH. Is that something you would suggest as well? So yes and no. Uh, for some pests, I would recommend like actually kind of like if you spray them off like in a backyard or something like i in my in my experience with my garden other plants not just cannabis that can be really effective simply using physical force of a water jet to like dislodge aphids or other sorts of insects definitely it's a valid um it's definitely a valid technique uh my problem with it though is that if you're not if you're not too careful and if you're not precise enough and careful, well, you already used the word careful, but if you're not, if you don't think about it, you could unintentionally not kill everything and have them like recolonize other plants and maybe even have that problem come back really, really early and really quickly. Um, it's of course a little bit more labor intensive to do something like this, but having, but the concept of like a knockdown spray before using the biocontrol is totally common and valid. And uh, it's a great one-two punch. Um, yeah, I definitely think that that's a, a valid way to go about things. Although much more, much more the case in veg than I would say in flower. And the other, yeah, and of course, one of the big problems with doing that kind of thing in flower would be um, you would dislodge a bunch of trichomes, and you would um, obviously, you know, if you re if you hydrate the buds way too much, you're going to very likely come into a problem with fungus like botrytis, for example or um, you might make uh, really great conditions for the germination of powdery mildew spores that might not have actually done it um, earlier. 
how do you feel about sprays like Dr. Zymes and products like that? I know a lot of people swear by them personally. I am not one who uses them myself um, in my own personal, uh, not work, but my own personal grows and that sort of a thing. Uh, but there's no like specific reason for that or anything. Um, I do feel like it works. Um, I've had applications that work really well uh, with clients and that sort of a thing. But I do feel like uh, it is a softer chemistry. And I think it's most useful as like a, it's either a regular application that you use to keep uh, populations down if you have like a constant sort of, um, if you're like constantly buffeted by things like thrips or spider mice, if it's a really high pest season for these sorts of arthropod pests, they're just constantly coming in and coming in. I think it's great because you, I, in my experience, I don't get like burning sort of a thing. And it's uh, really easy to utilize it from a logistical standpoint because of its, uh, its labeling and that kind of a thing. And that's always a really good, uh, well, it's a really good thing to have in the toolbox, if you know what I mean. You know, I've heard the, the, the argument uh, for the green lace wigs versus uh, ladybugs quite, uh, quite a bit lately. And I can, uh, I, I get it, but uh, ladybugs can be a good defense as well. I think a lot of people get discouraged because they bring them home and they set them, set them loose, the adults loose in their, their environment. And then the adults are kind of lazy and they don't necessarily, it, basically what I've, what I've come to find with ladybugs is that first one is, you know, it's going to help your problem some, but more or less you're, 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 uh, you're just kind of setting and you're helping yourself in the long run. It's better to be preemptive with the ladybugs than it is to kind of bring them in to solve the problem, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Because look, what I found with ladybugs is when they come in, a lot of times, A, you don't know the age of them. So they either just kind of fly off and die or they just kind of spread out and disperse. And they're or in their they're in that stage of life where they're not necessarily eating a lot. The actual benefit of the ladybugs is when they're in the early stage, you know, the, the larvae stage is actually when they're kicking ass. Uh, so do you have any suggestions on actually on how to keep the ladybugs in your area long enough to get that cycle going to where they're, you know, laying eggs on your plants or around your pots and you know setting you up for the real <laughs> the real uh, preventative uh, maintenance of the ladybugs there that's actually the generation that's going to help you out is is the you know the babies it's not necessarily the adults so if you can actually establish a colony a cycle of life with the ladybugs that's when they're more beneficial they can, they're not necessarily good as the cure once you have a problem you actually have to you know make them there you, they have to be home to actually have them be super beneficial in my opinion so do you have any advice on how to keep them <laughs> keep them there and happy step zero would be to make sure that the lady beetles that you're purchasing are not um, wild captured and make sure they're not the invasive harlequin lady beetle um harmonia axiridis Huge problem, um, kills native, it's actually an intraguild 
um, intergill predator. So it feeds on other labials, their eggs, the larvae. They vector um, a fungus pathogen, a natural and microsporidian pathogen, I think. Both or one of those, I always uh, go between that. Um, which is also really problem and problematic and deleterious for native species because it infects and kills them too. So as you can tell, I'm kind of passionate about that subject personally, but there are ways to use lady beetles responsibly, I would say. I do feel like you're right. They have like kind of a, there's kind of a difficulty with using them. This is actually kind of true for a lot of biocontrols when it comes to making sure that they are the right age, um, and also it's typically the case that the immature um, life stage is going to be much more voracious than the adult life stage because it has to necessarily, you know, it's trying to get to that adult stage to be able to reproduce. Um, all that being said, however, um, I would say that if you didn't have a whole lot of options and you are trying to apply them and you for whatever reason, you just happen to have them on hand and they weren't like these uh, invasives that I was talking about earlier, then you should apply them kind of at dusk or dawn. It depends on like, again, like what's the product exactly you have and how are they stored and a couple of other things, but applying them like, applying them to, uh, what's the word? Well, if you apply them too carelessly, you have the problem you just described where they fly around, they don't stay with you. Um, if you apply them at like dusk or, if it, or at dawn, they kind of like slowly sort of um, get ready because if, it's, if they're cold, they can't actually activate their flight muscles. And so that's how you kind of keep them together. But if you release them too, um, too slowly, and if you apply them uh, when they're much room temperature and they can move around really easily, they might just vacate the area. Another thing that you could do, I suppose, um, is you can trap them in some sort of like a mesh netting, which kind of would force them to be in the plant. So like if you had like a, if you had like a cannabis plant that's full of like cannabis aphid, I suppose, then you can just wrap a mesh screen around them and, you know, funnel the lady beetles into that it and have them just cover the area and you might get some control that way. Uh, but biocontrols can be weird and fickle in how they behave, especially when they're kind of kept in the tight spaces. You remember what I said about plant load and pathogen uh, passing, and that's true for animals too. It's why a lot of insects have to be so hygienic. And it's, I guess, one of the reasons why those predatory mites are able to keep themselves cleaned, even if they get a entomopathogenic fungus on them. Nice, nice. Smiley's Garden texted over another good question for us as well. He says, is there any form of natural support or supplements that can help with any pest problems? Natural what? Uh, any natural support or supplements that can be added to help with any pest problems. So basically, can you feed or add any kind of supplement to your plant that would help uh, pest management? It's sort of a cliche answer because I, I see it bandied about a lot on the internet, but um, one one thing that's sort of a, 
antithetical response is that highly nitrogenous crops, highly nitrogenous plants are really great for aphids, for example. So if you if you allow the plant to be fertilized or maybe like over fertilized with tons of nitrogen, then that's a limiting factor, not just for plants actually, which is why they love to uptake some nitrogen, but also for insects that feed on them too. Not all of them, but some of them. So if you kind of, if you sort of ramp that back a little bit, you can maybe like keep an aphid population from exploding where it would normally um, still reproduce quite quickly, but not nearly the same amount. And we're back, Jason Online 512 is in the chat. Lemon Hoko is in the chat. Excellent. Australian grown. No way. Mo grower. Chat's back up and running. The chat is up and running. It must have been server side. Oh, there it is. Speaking of oh, cyber speaking That's of security, a... though, uh, it's the same as biosecurity. Like, you know, right here, sometimes things just don't work and you have to try and find the solutions. And sometimes it's just because external situations are what they are. You can do everything right and you can still fail. But this is great. It's also cool that there were so many people who actually went to try to jump in. Security, Right. Yeah, enough to keep us rolling there. Uh, TC wanted to know uh, if you uh, if your favorite spider was a crab spider. Is what he wanted me to ask. Oh, that's a good question. Uh, it's not a crab spider. My favorites. Well, I do have a favorite spider. I like the silver agriope, agriope. Um, uh, spiders. They're like a garden spider that has a really cool silver metallic abdomen that's kind of neat and growing up I was eating sometimes in Southern California. Um, but if I had to really pick a, a, a winner, a real winner besides that bias, I would say probably the net casting spiders are my favorite, maybe. Um, the ogre face spiders, they, uh, they have these large, massive eyes and they use netting, they weave the net, and then they use it to like ambush their prey. They like stick it. They just stick them with the net and they, they fold them up. And it's, they also grow, get this, they grow night vision on their eyes with like a film and it like is deteriorated by light. So every, every day it goes away and every day their body like produces it again. And like, that's super inefficient, but that's kind of cool. I wonder if we could do something like that. Not like with our own eyes, but like maybe like a sunglass film or something natural. I don't know. Yeah. That would be pretty cool. Man, I've never been so happy to see Chad. <laughs> <laughs> Chad Westport would like to know how late would you spray plants and flower for uh, IPM. I try to avoid it entirely if possible, honestly. I guess, you know, it's kind of an ambiguous question because some people, I feel like some people count flower weeks different than others. Has that been your experience? What's that, Matthew? 
has it been your experience that some people count flower weeks differently than others? Oh, definitely, definitely. Some people try to go about when they first kind of start to see the flowers appear. Me, I'd start counting from the day I throw them in there. When I ch- the day I change that life cycle is day one for me. I yeah. don't wait until I start to see flower sites and then start counting. Day one's from day one. I, I, I kind of like that perspective because it's like cleaner and I feel as though you're like there's no ambiguity it's not like oh like this is when the tissue starts and this is you know this amount of tissue isn't flower but this amount of tissue is uh it's a little arbitrary that way and every every plant every cultivar is going to have its own idiosyncrasies right um so but yeah to answer the question i try to avoid it entirely if possible yeah honestly which cuts out a lot of options i understand but I'm just, especially with personal grows, I'm just really reticent. And I feel like one of the benefits of a home grow is that you can make use of low tech solutions um, a lot more easily. But what is a small scale is different for different people. And what's manageable for for various people depends. So um, I don't wanna be non-inclusive with my response, but I do feel like that's kind of one of the benefits. some of these pesticides, even natural or biopesticidal um, compounds, or even ones that are 25B sort of like unlabeled pesticides, you don't necessarily know like if there's a problem in the manufacturing that they don't put on the label because it's just some like weird event that happened or I don't want to fear monger here. Um, but I guess I do feel sometimes like when you've seen like all of the other examples with like way more noxious compounds and pesticides. And of course, a lot of those happened like decades ago, but I just feel like there's always that chance. And I'm definitely not like anti, anti-chemical completely because I think there are great chemicals and chemistries that can be utilized that aren't going to be toxic less that will be taken up by the plants and that sort of a thing. But, um, yeah, it's definitely like your own cost-benefit analysis has to come into play there. Let's see here. Sue had a question. Where did it go? Uh, Caballo, who I can only imagine is pronounced Caballo Polito, um, said, asked the question, what kind of flying bugs are smaller than gnats and buzz around my, my pots? Uh, there are a bunch of different like fungus gnats or cyarity that you could be dealing with. And shore flies are one example of an insect that is a little bit kind of, I wouldn't say they're smaller than fungus gnats. In fact, they're a little bit, I would say they're kind of bulkier in some ways, if you really were to compare the two. Uh, the gnats are rather dainty, um, but they might appear as smaller because they're kind of compact and the way that they like fly and, and have their and the rest of their wings and everything. I give, give them that look. Um, I'm trying to think of what like would be a smaller like buzzing fly, but like gnats are pretty small. Kazoo says, what if the green lace wigs don't kill off the aphids? They just kind of party together. Uh. Is that a, is that a, is that a thing? Could they actually like just not 
attack the, the problem and just kind of take yeah. off and fight with themselves. And, so they could, there are can so lace wounds in particular are cannibalistic. Um, so if you keep them in a container for too long together, they will eat each other. Absolutely. Um, they, they can get um, disrupted by various compounds that you apply. Um, you can, you can disrupt them with like a biopesticide potentially because lace wings are one of those soft-bodied insects that you might want to be careful with with certain biocontrols like uh, Vuvaria bassiana uh, to some degree. I haven't had a lot of negative interactions myself, but I do feel like they kind of fit in that soft-bodied insect category. So I'd be I'd be careful. Uh, there might be some interplay there. Potentially. Uh, that's just my speculation. Though. Um, but yeah. All powers would like like you to talk about thrips what about them oh thrips just thrips uh, not just i see i see the i see the question it's uh thrips so okay i'll talk to you about thrips thrips are the order thysanoptera they are closely related to the hemiptera like aphids at least leaf hoppers and tree hoppers those kinds of things they have a really neat mandible setup that's a sort of asymmetrical their left mandible is bigger than their right and they kind of scrape leaves and it gives them their characteristic stippling damage that you might associate with thrips if you've worked in the greenhouse for long even a couple of weeks um there are tons of thrips out there over i think six thousand at this point or something close to that number uh but like less than one percent i think are considered pestiferous and of those there's only like a few dozen that are you know, really agriculturally critical. Um, the biggest one, of course, was one that I already mentioned, which is Western flower thrips. Um, there's also greenhouse thrips that I've seen on cannabis as well. Uh, and I would expect that there are probably other sort of um, cryptic or maybe adaptive uh, thrips populations that could also be on cannabis. I think I've seen I've heard of onion thrips maybe being on, on cannabis, but I, I think that um, I haven't seen anything in like empirical literature and I'd be very careful to make those sorts of assessments without doing so or consulting with somebody like an agricultural extension agent to really know whether or not it's the Western flower thrips or the onion thrips or chili thrips or uh, something like that. Oh, I've also seen, I think, bean thrips on cannabis as well up in Humboldt. Speaking of which, in Humboldt, have you ever, do people here know Moon Maid Farms? I don't typically like to be the kind of person to make a tons of endorsements, but I worked with these people personally, and I really liked working with them a few years ago. So shout out to Moon Maid Farms. <laughs> I uh, saw, um, while working with them, some really cool uh, use of plant that I typically don't like called castor bean, which is an invasive. Uh, but it also produces tons of pollen. It has extra floral nectaries. And I, it's usually, I think the pollen might be kind of toxic, but I think the predatory mites actually quite liked it. Um, so that was kind of an interesting thing to see uh, them utilize. So I'm curious to know uh, how fast can some of these things spread? I was reading one time and it blew me away that uh, an aphid 
could travel a quarter mile, a quarter mile oh, yeah. in a day. That's right. In a day. So, I mean, and that's a little guy. That's a little, little tiny bug, a quarter mile. So, I mean, how fast can, you know, if you've got multiple areas, I mean, how fast can things, obviously things can spread quickly. If a little guy can go a quarter mile in a day, he can travel right next to a tent and start uh, causing havoc, can he? Absolutely. I've got, I've got something for you. Um, So aphids, so, okay. So most insects have wings and pretty much all of the insects that we really care about have wings as an adult, or they've lost them through evolution like with fleas. And that's kind of the defining characteristic of most insects is that they have these wings and those wings have allowed them to basically colonize everything and everywhere. Um, So that's a really important part of their ability to adapt is being able to get to new locations or get between locations that they really need to get to like host plants, for example, that might be interspersed or search for prey or to search for like carrion or whatever, something rotting. Um, But aphids, so so some insects are really great flyers and they, they're really competent and they can fly very well in the air. Like butterflies and moths and dragonflies and things like this. Uh, and some beetles, but not very many. Others are like aphids in that they're basically, because of how small they are and how little mass they have, the sort of fluid dynamics of air is kind of similar to water for us. And the implication of that is that they don't have to spend a ton of energy um, getting up into the air. But uh, one really critical thing about this um, equation is that insects have to feed on a lot of sugar in order for them to produce trehalose. So they break down usually sucrose, but also glucose. And use enzymes to do it. And then they turn it into uh, a, a special kind of sugar called trehalose. And what's significant about that is that the trehalose can, is, it lowers the osmotic pressure in their body. So they can, they can build up tons of sugar in the body and they're able to store it. And when they need to use their wings, they're able to very quickly break down the sugar, the trehalose, and they can beat their wings really quickly. And that's what allows them to be really good at what they do. And that's why you see things like honeybees that make honey or wasps that will like fly at you and try to drink your really sugary soda. Um, But they also go after, well, in the case of wasps, they go after protein because their their larvae really need it for producing the fats and the meat that is required for the metamorphosis that will happen. And for a lot of herbivorous insects, it's the same kind of thing. They need proteins for plant, from plants too. And they also need sugars as well. Um, and some insects don't even feed when they're adults. And so they have to use all the sugar that they produced. But I've been on a diatribe. Um, uh, aphids are, the aphids eat nothing but sugar from phloem sap. So um, they're really, really adapted to that. But I wanted to show you something. I think I can screen share, right? Hello? You should be able to now. 
Okay. Um, let's see here. Let me just, is it this one? I think it is this one. Right, a really cool graphic overlay. Is it this one? No, it's not. Dang it. Well, I had this really great PDF that I came across recently. Maybe it's this one. No, it's not. And essentially, it shows how these um, uh, the budworm moths that we have to deal with in cannabis, basically they are able to cross, they're able to cross like almost like, I think something like egregious, like 500 kilometers or hundred kilometers in like a day or, or in like a week or something or a few days. Because what they do is they are able to uh, rise up into the atmosphere and then they get onto the tailwinds up in the upper draft and they're able to just coast for long periods of time in the air. And a lot of insects actually do this. They kind of ride the wind currents like, um, you know, something might, you know, uh, ride the ocean currents, those sort of jet streams that exist in uh, waterways and that kind of a thing. Um, but I had a really great, there was a really great um, map and maybe I've lost it or it's somewhere else or, uh, anyways, I can go on to another question. Uh, Lemon Hoko would like to know uh, your thoughts on assassin bugs as part of a general part of uh, IPM. I feel like there are much more effective biocontrol agents that cover some of this, most of the same sort of um, demographics. The thing about assassin bug, the thing about, well, yeah, the thing about assassin bugs in general and other sorts of like large biocontrol agents, like a lot of people like mantises, for example. The problem with them is that the vast majority of agricultural pests that you really have to deal with are much too small for them to really consider to be a big threat or to be considered a big food source for them. Um, I have seen praying mantises feed as nymphs on something as small as a predatory mite. And I've even posted on my Instagram, if you want to go through all of my posts, I don't, uh, you know, it's been a very, very long time since I did, maybe like two or three years, but it's there. And it's kind of a cool thing, but like that phenomenon quickly fades as the nymphs get bigger and bigger, and it's just not a food source that they're going to make use of. The assassin bug is sort of in a similar situation. I could see it being effective for maybe like caterpillars and things like that and maybe stink bug eggs and stink bugs and other sorts of things that are kind of larger. But those macro pests, I think, are kind of innocuous compared to like two-spotted spider mite or rice root aphid or hemp rusted mite for that matter, which are incredibly small in comparison. I've got a personal question inspired by uh, Mr. Uh... Robert, Mr. Greenfingers, Thomas, and he's talking about the bridge level. Uh, what, are you, what are your thoughts on uh, maintaining a higher bridge level as part as of, uh, you know, pest management there, just keeping an overly healthy plant? Uh, and if so, if you do believe in, like, keeping your bricks high for pest management, what are some uh, good ways to check and keep your bricks level uh, up? So I disagree strongly with the idea that um, 
if your bricks level is high, then you cannot have pest problems. There's a lot of reasons why it doesn't make sense ecologically, and I already articulated that point already. The reason why herbivorous insects feed on plants is because plants are the most readily ready source of carbohydrates on Earth. And they've had this they've had this evolutionary adaptation to get sugars and other nutrients from plants, um, and they've been doing this for longer than mammals have even existed, about twice the time, like 200 plus million years ago, at least, you know, 400 probably around there. Um, like I mentioned earlier, a lot of insects pretty much exclusively feed on uh, sugars, especially in the adult life stage, because they needed to power their wings. Um, you know, it's kind of, it's sort of an odd, it's sort of at odds with pretty much all all observations about uh, herbivorous insects. Um, I've heard people make comments about how like insects lack the enzymes to break down sugars. That's entirely false. Um, and I have empirical research that talks about that. I've talked about it on a future cannabis project. I had a really great um, uh, video uh, narrative with um, Leighton and uh, Peter Cerveri, Cerveri, and uh, I forget the other person who was there with us. But I also have a video on my YouTube channel that talks about the implications of, um, of insect digestion on integrated pest management. And I kind of go over this topic and I cite the empirical research that shows that insects have enzymes that break down sugars and other proteins and things like that for that matter. Um, and insects do require um, pretty high levels of carbohydrates and they break down the sugars and trehalose is the blood sugar, the blood sugar um, or the primary um, sugar for their hemoglobin. So, I mean, yeah, but BRICS levels in general indicate photos photosynthetic rate and um, that's really useful as a proxy for a lot of physiological responses, kind of firing, and, and those are all good things. But another thing to consider is that BRICS levels are very different in different kinds of tissues. Uh, fruit tissue, obviously, is different from uh, leaf tissue. Leaf tissue is going to be different than petiole tissue, and petiole tissue is going to be different than stem tissue. And that's another consideration to make as well. When people say BRICS level, well, yeah, but where? Which wood bricks level are you talking about and what tissues are you referring to? And when you kind of make that, when you have that acknowledgement and it's kind of, kind of an odd statement to make because aphids, for example, can feed on the stems, the petioles and the leaves, depending on the species. And tons of insects make use of behavioral adaptations and physiological adaptations that um, sort of bypass or avoid entirely um, or just simply detoxify like, you know, secondary metabolites that are toxic or, um, you know, they make, they somehow avert like structural weaknesses or um, strength, I should say, by seeking out those weaknesses like through stomata um, or through having like a hypodermic needle for a, for a mouth part. Uh, yeah, so. I don't feel like that's very useful. And in that video that I was talking about earlier, I even cite a resource that looked into this exact um, 
uh, assertion that people were making back in like the early to mid 90s, uh, agricultural consultants were making the point that if your BRICS level is higher than I think 12, then the um, then the plants, uh, these were particularly vineyards or grapes, um, they would be totally resistant to leaf hoppers. And then they literally studied this in organic and non-organic vineyards. Um, and in fact, it was kind of the reverse. There's actually a reverse correlation where uh, leafhopper nymphs in particular, I think, were greater on higher bricks plants. And they, there was only a few instances where um, higher bricks correlated with lower leafhopper nymphs. Usually it was anti-correlated or there was no correlation. That's just one study, of course, but it kind of flies in the face of the sort of example brought up. And they even track the BRICS levels all throughout the grow. So that's kind of my opinion. Um, it's not really an opinion, it's empirical fact. Yeah, uh, Mike B's got a question for you in chat and there's no way I'm touching those. <laughs> Wait, what? Mike B has some uh, a question in chat right above uh, Lemon Hoko right there. He wants to know about uh, Stern, Sturmata. Oh, Stein, oh Steiner, Nima, Steiner Nima Carpo Capsi and Steiner Nima Felsier. So these are nematodes. Um, the latter one, Steiner Nima Felsier, is... It is the one that I use the most. It is oftentimes really useful for fungus gnats. Um, their larvae can be infested really easily. And I think they're a really great solution to fungus gnats in particular. Uh, they can also go after thrips pupae. When, they, uh, when the larva pupates, it can fall off of the leaf and get into the soil. And you can utilize uh, nematodes to um, control their population as well but I haven't found them to be useful for, unfortunately, rice root aphids. I don't know any literature that kind of confirms or denies this personally. It's just been my own personal experience. I've heard some people say that this is not the case. It kind of makes, doesn't make very much sense to me because a lot of, um, a lot of predatory nematodes do a lot better when their, um, when their host is much larger because they can, they can populate much more and you get many more juveniles that way. Um, but I suppose fungus gnat larvae is pretty small too. So maybe the jury is a little bit out on that. I haven't experienced it personally and I know I've heard other people um, who corroborate that. So it kind of makes me more confident, but some people on the internet have said the reverse. So until there's more research, I suppose it's, um, uh, out to pasture. Uh, there was another question in here as well. I don't see how it relates, but I'm going to ask it anyway. And he's asking basically, uh, has Matt ever used kombucha to soil drench or spray on cannabis plants? No, I haven't. I know as far as like dumping it into the soil, I can see it'd be good for probiotics like type thing, but I don't see the connection as uh, spraying it on the plant. I'd be careful with the vinegar. Um, 
maybe there would be a use for it potentially. Um, I don't want to discount it out of hand, but um, I'm not sure that's the same microbes. And uh, I think in some cases they're pretty related though. Um, but I don't think that, I mean, if you don't know, you know, if you're not totally sure about what you're applying and how much you're actually going to get, uh, then I feel like it's a lot, it's a bit of a moot point, unfortunately. But it's that kind of, it's that kind of like lateral thinking that um, will probably lead to a lot of really novel biopesticides in the future. So I think it's really cool that people are thinking in that way. And I think that's also a solution to a lot of sustainability issues in agriculture and just kind of in general by utilizing kind of like softer chemistries or making use of something that's already got multiple uses already so that it's more conserved and more efficient. Lemon Holko would like to know, what is your favorite strain? Very good question. Yeah. You know, at this point, I think, uh, I think it would have to be uh, Brandon Rust's um, uh, death, death Breath, or maybe his Lamarilla. Uh, those have probably been some of my best experiences with cannabis. And that might sound a little bit surprising or, or, or biased since we um, hang out so often, but uh, I mean, I have to give it to them. It was quite, it was quite a really great aromatic um, experience. Uh, I feel like I've smoked enough cannabis that I have a, an okay representative picture, maybe not the most expansive one in the world. And I'll, I'll definitely agree with that, but I do feel like a lot of times, you know, the aroma and the scent that I get is very um, monotonous or, um, or it's very like acrid and possibly even the result of like some, some poor, poor cultivation practices or something, or maybe even poor curing or drying that might've like caused what would otherwise be a really great experience to be much more muted. Also, sometimes I feel like I, I like don't have a, well, not that I don't have an appreciation for subtlety or flavor that's uh, much more subtle, but at the same time, I do feel like I really gravitate towards more, much more intense, like citric flavors um, or gas flavors um, or peppery. I like that kind of like that peppery, savory um, aroma. Um, so things that are really strong and pungent. I quite like it. Mr. Aaron, the grower, shout out to you. Very cool gentleman. Would like to know, uh, how would you treat grasshoppers in a warm climate, moist, warm climate? Are, I've never really went outdoors, but are grasshoppers uh, a problem for cannabis? I didn't really realize grasshoppers would be a problem for uh, cannabis, but obviously I bet they're a huge problem in places they get locust swarms. You know, North America used to get a locust swarm, kind of like what we see in like Africa and Eurasia sometimes, I think, right? Yeah. Um, but we actually exterminated the population, uh, I think, in the early 1900s. So we don't have that problem as much as we do. We still get locust swarms, but not nearly the same kind that we do before. Um, 
fun fact, uh, the Botanigard product I was talking about makes use of the Bouveria bassiana isolate called GHA. GHA stands for grasshopper active. Um, so if I were you, I'd use that isolate personally. They also really do well, antipathogenic fungi in general, they do very well in moist, humid conditions. And I think that they make or break a lot of uh, systems when you're trying to apply it in a foliar uh, spray, but also in like drench applications, keeping the area where the um, where the propagules are gonna be hydrated and moist is really useful. Ace Boogie 3223 would like to know, has Matt ever used labs to deal with WPM? I assume that means white powdery mildew. And, um, I would and no, not, not personally. Um, I've used bacillus. I've used bacillus products before, and they were effective, but not lactobacillus myself. Or maybe I've used, I mean, not... I worked with people who abused it, but that was before working with me. So I'm not going to take credit for that. And it does work in, in, in some people's cultivation, but I feel like the bacillus products I use work better in my experience. Um, and I also feel like uh, one of the disadvantages of biopesticides like that is that you often do have to apply them uh, very often and, and rapidly. And if you and for a lot of people, that can be a lot to ask, I feel like, especially when you want to get a lot of coverage, and especially if you might not be able to uh, pinch back the growth, or if for whatever reason you don't want to do that because you want to sort of um, bulk up with biomass or something like that. But it depends on your cultivation context. What made you want to venture down the road of uh, insects there? Uh what, what's, what initially struck your fascination with bugs and made you want to, you know, head down that road, uh, is, you know, uh, study? I don't know. I don't know exactly why. Um, I've always found them fascinating, even as a child. I think that it's probably a similar kind of fascination that a lot of children are stereotyped with like um, liking bugs, I think is one of those stereotypes. The other one is like dinosaurs growing up or fossils or, um, you know, things like that. Marine biology maybe. Um, so for me, I think they're, the fact that they're so alien as animals is kind of amazing. I became really fascinated with them probably because of their like just interesting morphology. But as I grew up, that sort of fascination got facilitated by, um, and I've said this before on other, other channels, and maybe even the last channel, last time we even spoke, but Pokemon, I like to credit for uh, really taking that initial fascination and kind of allowing me to explore it in a fictional world. Um, I think that was really beneficial for me in the same way that like, like training could be like in a virtual training uh, session or something like that, where you think about things in, in concepts of like ecology and they've got all these little creatures you get to find and they'll have their, they'll have like 
admittedly kind of poorly described and totally made up fictional ecologies, but um, also insects were one of the really common ones and bug type Pokemon were pretty, um, uh, they were one of the first things you encounter too. So that was kind of helpful for that sort of a thing. So Satoshi Jiri is um, also credited, he actually is somebody who like me loved to go exploring and liked to go finding bugs in caves and forests. And that's actually where he got the idea for Pokemon in the first place. So I have to say that I feel like it's sort of a mirror kind of like situation where we both like the same kind of thing. And he ended up directing Pokemon and I ended up consuming the product as a child. And um, so that's kind of a cool thing too. Um, Japan and China in general also kind of have a, I would say like an appreciation for the entomological world um, culturally uh, that you sometimes also see in like the West, but in a different sort of fashion. And I think I really appreciated those depictions in like lore and artwork and that kind of a thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was just kind of a naturalist. I'm an, I'm an Eagle Scout. So as a Boy Scout, I would go hiking in uh, various places in California and across North America. And um, sort of that outdoors environment I've, I'm, I'm quite taken with. And I enjoy sometimes making trips up to, feel, to hang out with my buddies up in the high deserts of Inyo County, uh, where I can interact with some kind of cool insects. There are quite a bit of them sort of flying about, especially at nighttime, they're always attracted to lights and things. And that's always a cool experience. I could see it, you know, actually I can, I could see it both ways. Some people just kind of get in the heebie-jeebies from, you know, dealing with insects and small bugs. But then the more I think about it and the more I listen to you speak there, I can honestly see the fascination in some aspects that is like, it, it, they are foreign or alien, as you kind of said there, that uh, in the aspect that as you study that each one, you're basically, you know, bringing it into its own world. You know what I mean? Each insect is basically, it's a, a sub sub world where they, you know, they give new, no shits really about what we're doing. They, you know, they're doing their own thing. They have their own life processes. And I could see, you know, the fascination with wanting to study them one by one and seeing how they live in their their own little bubble, their own little world without us. So, and, it, and that's, you know, you if you look at them all like that, it's their own little world or their own little books, man. Uh, that's a lot of knowledge. That's a lot of entertainment, if anything. I mean, it's you're learning as you go, but moreover, it's, it's entertainment. I could see once you've kind of developed that fascination for it as seeing how they work, how they work together, how they eat, all, you know. And again, with each species, it being so incredibly different. I could see, I could see uh, a fascination building there I, easily, to be honest with you. I've never even really thought about that till now. But yeah, I could see each little insect being its own little world to dive into, basically. I definitely feel like the just the high variability in their morphology, all the various ecological niches that they um, occupy, and compete with, and have influenced, uh, especially with plants. You know, um, that 
was a great segue into my fascination with the rest of natural life. And that also includes things like viruses, bacteria, fungi, um, you know, and other like sort of higher animal forms that are much more complex and that kind of a thing. And, you know, then I got into things like microbiome theory and um, hollow genome theory and phylosymbiosis theory and these sorts of concepts that are, um, they kind of like look at sort of the entire biome of earth in sort of um, like a holistic perspective. And I think that's just a really great way to articulate things. And it's really fascinating to me that we have the ability to do so. You know, um, I, was re I was reflecting on this um, yesterday, actually, the Pokemon comment reminded me of this when so i've talked to i've gone on and talked about um, the fact that some viruses can actually be beneficial to their host um, in one example we have various parasitoid wasps that make use of uh, poly dna viruses when they infest a host like a caterpillar so they inject a venom and they also inject a virus that um, uh, modulates their immune system and makes it so that the immune system doesn't attack the egg and it can have a lot of other effects too. So, and that's passed down from the wasp female to the, you know, to the, to the uh, progeny. And it's crazy to me to think that the first time I actually became aware of the concept of a beneficial virus was not, was not one of those parasitoid wasps or, or a uh, evolutionary biology text textbook. Um, it was in uh, Pokemon Generation 2, and it was with this little software program, this little line of code called PokeRus, which was a Pokemon virus. Uh, and I remember very clearly as a early teen at this point, I think, becoming aware of this kind of like neat feature that wasn't really talked about, but it was just kind of a little, in my opinion, kind of Easter egg. Uh, that was added to a very particular patch of grass in a particular area of the game. And if you played with your Pokemon there, if you battled other things that had this virus, then your Pokemon would catch it. And they'd have it for a period of time, and it would actually be beneficial because you would gain more experience points when you battled with them. So it was kind of like a mutualistic virus that kind of passed through your system. If you want to look at it that way and that's kind of cool right that's kind of cool that like some japanese game that was made like in a foreign country to me um you know that had all these ecological perspectives you know like that's a real thing like it always was but like that person called it they're not the first person like of course the virologists have um looked at this concept from before the 90s but I just think it's really fascinating and um, kind of uh, endearing. <laughs> it's kind of endearing that people were exposed to this sort of um, uh, fictional world for other people with different kinds of fictional worlds, but it allows them to like explore these kind of cool concepts. Another one is for those people who I'm sure in the chat have played the game. Um, uh, there's this other one called Parasect, which is basically like a cicada kind of stylized cicada insect Pokemon. And when it evolves or when it changes its life stage, it actually grows a giant, it has mushrooms on its back 
And it's the same mushrooms that affect cicadas that I'm now looking at research about um, and about entomopathogenic fungi like Bavaria bassiana that, and cordyceps mushrooms that take control of insects and other arthropods and can like affect their body movements and other sorts of things like that. And it, again, it just kind of dawns on me that like these are kind of heady, high level ecological things that are being introduced to me in a game as a kid. And so for me, it's sort of blase. The concept's already been introduced to me, but I didn't have to like go to college or even attend high school for me to be um, introduced to the concept. So I just kind of like that kind of stuff. That was a bit of a rambly answer, but um, hopefully it was enlightening. Sure was, it sure was. Mr. Halima Hoko would like to know if you've ever thought about going into the selling of predators as a business. And if not, then why not? No, probably not because um, I value my independence a lot as a consultant, as an agricultural consultant. I don't like to toe the line. Um, I've interacted with a lot of biocontrol agents or well, and their insectaries. And I've been disappointed with the um, interaction sometimes where I feel like people who are taught as salespeople about products, um, but not necessarily are always aware of like the literature on the subject of pests and their biocontrol interactions. Um, I think that that can be really problematic. And then sometimes they are aware of certain situations or problems or um, other, other sorts of issues, but they have to kind of not address them for their job's sake, for their employment. So that's one reason I'm kind of reticent to do that, even though I genuinely like most biocontrol companies and I do feel like they're very valuable and I respect a lot of them, especially the really big names. Um, that being said, if it was me personally trying to create a business like myself and kind of um, sort of found, found it, it's so much money. It's so expensive to have the technical personnel, to have the equipment, um, to patent your techniques. A lot of times um, it's really important for you to have like a really um, sophisticated setup that allows you to keep things segregated and keep your cultures of mites um, fed properly and also make sure that they're um, uh, so like their genetic culture is of course like good that you're keeping them not sick or keep them healthy and also making sure that um, their behaviors are also kind of um, exercised. If you feed predators and parasitoid um, organisms, if you like, if you have them interact with the prey or with the alternative host prey, or with an alternative food source in general, then over time, you kind of adapt the population to seek those things out, which might not match the context that you're trying to apply them to in practice, like in a greenhouse, for example. So yeah, there's a lot of complexity to it and I, uh, I don't underestimate it. You know, I actually could see that uh, it being a negative thing for you. I wouldn't want to see you do it, to be honest with you. You seem like the type of person that uh, very likes to be mentally uh, stimulated. 
you know, uh, daily. I would hate to see somebody like yourself kind of be caught in a daily grind where you were locked into, you know, kind of running that business, worried about keeping bugs alive and orders and repeating yourself on a daily basis. I think you would get a little frustrated, almost tying your hands. Uh, you know what I mean? Intellectually, oh, I do. just kind of holding yourself down. I, I don't think you would enjoy it. I think you're better off where you're at, you know, being challenged on a daily basis with new questions instead of, you know, trying to run a business uh, like that. I think you can run be just as effective, if not spreading the knowledge that like you're doing now, you know, uh, versus, you know, trying to run a business like that. I could see it being a nice side project maybe, but man, I think to run it for yourself, I think you'd be limiting yourself in a lot of ways, to be honest with you. Uh, I think you would be just a better asset to, to run wild. <laughs> I, I certainly feel that way too. I, I definitely get where you're coming from and I definitely would support, I would definitely help people who would want my help with like the, the, maybe management or the like just the, the general SOPs or practice of an insectary. And I've had actually conversations with people on this very topic and I would not be against that sort of a thing if that sort of thing were to manifest. Um, but yeah, like actually directly managing it or being very responsible for it. Um, it's a, it is a Herculean task and you're right. I think that I would ultimately maybe resent uh, pigeonholing myself in that way. I think everybody would, to be honest with you, you're a great source of knowledge and it would suck to see you kind of be just caught up in the rut like that, you know, mm-hmm. so much. Uh, and again, you know, just the cannabis world aside and just your interest in, your interest in that, uh, the insect world there, I'm sure there's so many that you have yet to study, you know, putting it, what you know aside, I'm sure there's so, so much other insects you'd, you'd, you know, like to dive into deeper and it'd be hard to do when you're locked into a nine to five and yeah. you know, just concentrating on in, it, in, in one in particular industry. You know what I mean? Definitely. Um, I definitely agree with that. It's again, raining. I gotta right give now. you some. It's raining right now in San Diego, so that's noteworthy. Anyways, yeah, it's not good for it to be raining anywhere right now. That's for sure. Um, you know, I gotta thank you for sure because you know you're one of the very few gentlemen out there actually, you know, specializing in just IPM and making a lot of knowledge known. So. You know, you as far as that goes, I think you're pretty much alone in your lane <laughs> right now. So again, it would it would kind of stink to see you tied down to one. There's people already generating bugs, with, but not there's only one xanthanol running around uh, helping us learn. So yeah, I'd hate to see you be tied down to one industry like that. So thank, thank you so for much. being so free with your information. Well, By you're the very way. Welcome. You know, you're super welcome. And I probably wouldn't do it better than them either, which would be a net negative for everyone else, like you're saying, you know. Um, I, yeah, I mean, that's just, I, I've said it many times. I don't want to, I don't want to, like, I don't want to make myself into a cliched soundbite 
but I feel like it's really imperative that especially maybe it's because of my generation and my interaction with the internet being so like innate kind of um, if your business plan is not better than a Google search, you have a bad business plan. Um, people can get access to research reports. They can get access to a lot of things um, that they couldn't before. Some of it is still inaccessible either because it's through a paywall or it's, uh, behind a paywall, I should say, or um, it's not published uh, digitally potentially or it's only, it's only accessible in very select areas, um, or it's just really esoteric and arcane and you can't really understand it. And unfortunately, a lot of that information that's been coming out in the last five to 10 to 15 years, it's actually really comprehensive and sophisticated and can be very nuanced and really useful. And it's really important for me that the cannabis industry in specific, but also agriculture in general, gets access to this information. And I think that uh, a lot more people my age and uh, future generations would be more interested in agricultural pursuits and, and, you know, just sort of, you know, maybe be benefited personally from concepts that allow them to take a hold of their own ability to produce food or maybe their values are different because they want to have land or they want to in some way steward land um, and protect it and kind of safeguard it and allow it to be much more productive um, or at the very least allow it to be uh, in use by the native ecology which is just as important or more important for surviving or for like um, well for keeping the earth kind of uh, as we know it currently, the earth is always changing. Ecology is always changing. We're part of the ecology too, you know, but if you don't want to see, you know, certain species get destroyed or us to totally terraform the earth, then we have to make some sort of, uh, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, compromise. Yeah. Light it up again. Tim would like to know, and this is why I love chat because they think of questions that you you know angles you'd never really think of. Light up again. Tim would like to know which insect do you think is most important to the earth? Oh, um, that's a good one, isn't it? <laughs> I suppose that. Important is maybe a hard thing to really qualify, but I would if we if we change the word maybe important or interpret it as maybe like influential, maybe um, then I think I might be I might be tempted to say that at least one really great contender might be the the entire Hymenoptera, maybe. So like your bees, your wasps, and your ants, which ants and bees are derivatives of wasps. So the ancestral Hymenoptera is a wasp. And I say that because uh, they encompass a lot of the really important, well, all, pretty much most of the really important insect pollinators of flowering plants, which are also pretty much the most successful clade of land plants. Um, 
so maybe and, and also most insects have not gone back to colonize the ocean like their crustacean ancestors did or come from, came from. So I'm going to kind of discount, obviously, the ocean and the marine environment for that part of the earth, because most insects don't really do that. Um, but yeah, I would say that wasps and ants do a lot of terraforming, a lot of bioturbation that's really important off the top of my head. Um, they process a lot of uh, plant matter and animal matter. Um, they facilitate, like I said earlier, they facilitate plants um, uh, development and, and particularly the some of the most successful plants out there, um, as well as some that are not uh, flowering and so the angiosperms or um, the gymnosperms, I mean, yeah. So yeah, maybe that would be a good example. Uh, let me see, Caballero wanted to know, uh, what do stink bugs eat? He gets them on his plants and he can't figure out what's wrong. Um, so there are actually predatory stink bugs that feed on other insects and they actually can be a beneficial biocontrol, but uh, they're not really commercially available. Um, others, most of them are herbivorous and they feed on all tons of things. Some of them are very specific in what they feed on. Some of them are really generalist. Um, the brown marmorated stink bug is one example that's really common in North America now. Um, yeah, and it's uh, invasive, unfortunately. I think it started getting here around 2008. And uh, it's, it's, it's also a residential pest. So we'll get into people's houses when it's cold to find a place to like hibernate. Um, so people sometimes see them when it gets cold and uh, they can cause a bit of a nuisance that way. Uh, but yes, a lot of stink bugs are herbivorous and a lot of them are generalists too. Uh, let's see here. I forgot who asked it, but uh, they were wanting to know what was your take on what OHN was? OHN? Uh, what was the question? I'm trying to get back to it. Scroll down, lost it. Right here, Microgroom says, Eagle, can you ask Matt what his take on OHN is? That's, that's the question. <laughs> I don't understand the question. Microgroom, could you rephrase the question? There's another one. Oh, yes, my friend uh, TCDR. DM'd me, uh, texted me a question. He says, can I ask you if he can send you some tree seeds if you're interested in growing some fruit trees, etc. What is your favorite tree from around the world? Oh, that's a really generous thing to say. I appreciate that. Um, hmm. Well, I currently have a loquat tree that I planted myself several years ago. Um, I also have a pomegranate tree and I have a fig tree that doesn't produce fruit, unfortunately, anymore for some reason. Um, oh man, I, you know, I'm part of the California Rare Fruit Growers Association. 
or I'm not part of it, but I've talked with them and I've associated with them a lot. And I, you know, what I would like is I would love to have an ice cream bean tree. Um, that would be pretty cool. Uh, yeah. Also, when I lived in China, I fell in love with red cane or purple cane, sugar cane. And um, I don't really have access to it. I know that it exists in like Florida and other places too, but I would love to get access to some uh, shoots to plant because I love that cane. I remember very vividly like being sold like on the street, somebody would like, they would have these like really long canes um, in like a basket and they would just like take a machete and they would, um, they would husk the outer shell and then they would chop it at all the nodal points. Then you would like tear off the flesh of the, of the sugar cane. It was very supple. Well, I mean, it was firm, but it was very easy to rip off. And then you would squeeze all the sugar liquid out of the sugar cane and they, you know, people like to spit in China. That's a, hopefully that's not a controversial thing to say. It's been my experience. Um, just spit on the floor and uh, we'll keep walking. And um, uh, I got some looks when I was like, let's put it in the plastic bag. And I'm like, oh, all right. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was so good. And I wish I could have that experience a lot more regularly. So if we're talking about horticultural cuttings, then uh, those things come to mind. There's tons of plants out there that I love to grow too. Um, I grew a miracle fruit plant for a little while. Uh, for those who don't know, the fruit has a compound in it that if you feed on it, it makes really sour things like lemons and limes taste very sweet because the compound binds with a receptor in your tongue. And that's kind of cool. So that would be kind of cool to, to, to get another ex uh, chance to grow as well. Not to be like taking advantage of this generosity or anything, but if you, if you need, if you have ideas, here are some ideas. <laughs> so this question I have to ask because I'm curious to see if there is interest here. He's Jack says, what is asking, what is your favorite knife or fire iron? manufacturer oh it's very funny to see people think that i'm actually not a gun guy because i am actually i've taken the uh, shooting active shooting defense courses and um military armed combatives um and i'm a big fan of that kind of a thing believe it or not i'm a big military science buff or at least i consider myself to be um, and in my spare time, I play things like digital combat simulator with uh, aircraft and uh, real controls and, um, you know, that kind of stuff. So I am actually a, a big fan of, of having those uh, armaments and ballistics and that kind of a thing. One of the many other passions that I have, actually. Uh, but, that, but that doesn't answer the question. That didn't actually answer the question. So favorite... Um, I mean, it's a tool. It depends on what you're trying to do with it, right? But um, I, I like the. I would say I've always, I've always enjoyed and fantasized about maybe having a, a PSL, um, which is like a, which is kind of like an automatic or semi-automatic, um, like Mosin Nagant seven six two five four R, ammunition, like a Dragunov for those who know what that is. 
or maybe like um, uh, maybe like an MP5 variant would be pretty neat to have. Um, very very classic traditional uh, P90 would be pretty cool. Or uh, um, but uh, yeah, so but I live in California, so my options are limited. Uh, what about uh, knives? What I'm a knife man myself. I don't. I'm not much for firearms, but uh, are knives your interest too? Yeah. Um, so I they are actually. In fact, um, I recently got one of these. This right here is a um, Spyderco knife with a very particular steel that I really have no business owning for the kinds of work that I do. Um, but it's, uh, it's Maximet steel. It's Maximet. Let's see if it's on the side, right? Yeah. You can see this if the camera, uh, focuses on it. Yeah. Spyderco Maximet. Maximet is a brittle kind of steel. That doesn't mean that it's like so brittle. It's like glass will break off. It means that it uh, tends to cleave instead of deform. So that has implications for keeping the edge razor sharp, but it also has implications for sharpening and it's really, really, really difficult to do that. And I also keep, um, I also keep a, uh, I'm blanking on, it's a leak. It's from, um, it's Kershaw. <laughs> I have a Kershaw leak. I had, I've had a Kershaw leak for most of my life. And then I recently lost it. Unfortunately, the tip broke off and I lost it after that. Um, but I have that in D2 um, steel. Actually, it's like a it's like a CR something or other, you know, base steel on the spine that makes it really resistant to corrosion and really stiff. And then they've um, uh, sort of put in a composite with a D2 steel, uh, which kind of keeps its edge a little bit better and is a little bit better in like a rougher tumble. It's, it's tool steel, don't get me wrong, it's tool steel, but um, it definitely does what it needed to do and it keeps sharp. And as long as you strop it, um, I feel like it's a really great uh, tool to have. And if you're interested in more kind of stuff like this, I have an IPM, Integrated Pest Management Equipment Gear Review on my YouTube channel where I get to nerd out about things like that. So um, yeah, you can check that out if you like. And um yeah that's another reason why i like Just to go me. to the, the high desert by the way so see i'm glad jack jack asked because uh that just that it's an it's one of the aspects of these shows that's uh, kind of nice is you know sometimes you see that other side of folks you go really i never seen that i just got that much cooler in my book <laughs> i have i feel like i have a, a i have a i feel like i have a unique perspective about that kind of thing and you know i i think that like i don't want to get too political here but i just feel like it's important to have responsibility when it comes to having that sort of a right and having access to it and you treat it with respect and you know, you got to be safe. And there's tons of people who I think on a daily basis um, don't really act with that kind of like personal responsibility and respect. And um, I'm critical of that. And I try to be a good example for myself. And I don't think that it's uh, to, to a degree, I don't feel like it's uh, beneficial to be really 
sort of aggressively militant about, you know, your opinions about this sort of a thing. Um, and I do feel like some people who are in the industry, uh, the firearms industry anyways, uh, I don't know. I just feel like there's a lot of like marketing and um, drama, some, a lot of melodrama that I can't always tell whether or not it's they're trying to be factual or if they just believe their own marketing and they're trying to fear monger, things like that. But maybe I'll eat crow and they'll actually ban all firearms in the United States of America. Who knows? I hate to see that day. I hate to see that day. Yeah, I'm just Stroll through chat. I can tell you right now, Jankovic. just because of that. Jankovic Chomsky says, bro, studies, real ass, war tactics, and history as a hobby. Those bugs don't have a chance. I, I feel like that's kind of a great, that's a really great in a nutshell thing is that I, I do try to apply that kind of stuff. I have a MET-TC perspective about insects. And if you don't know what I mean, then you don't know. But if you know, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, a lot of those tactics is about strategy and technique. And it's all, it's all logistics. I saw, a really great, I saw a really great tweet right before I came on, actually. I'm going to use our technology here to, to, to reference it. Um, this guy I follow on Twitter called Swift on Security said, uh, my thoughts on comparing cybersecurity to battle. Uh, it's a quote by Lindy McCormick, which is a NATO allied commander in the Atlantic fleet from 19, and he was born in 1995 and he died in 1956. He said, I am tempted to make a slightly exaggerated statement that logistics is all of war making, except shooting the guns, releasing the bombs and firing the torpedoes. And then the guy says again, um, that basically, here, let me get it for you here. Uh, essentially, it's all, it all boils down to logistics is the point I'm trying to make here. The comment that was made was that like war is logistics, but everything's logistics when you boil it down to like their component parts. So you're right back where you started. So if you just start with things being logistics instead of like war is logistics or whatever other discipline is logistics, then, you know, it, it's kind of more useful to look about, look at things in that way. Econ economics and resources and a lot of things are really helpful when you look at things in that perspective. I'm not saying that that is what things are and I don't want to be too reductionist when I say that but I do think it's a really helpful perspective because in a lot of ways, even like when we describe ecology, that I said this on the Chief Homegrow podcast a little while ago, the oikos, the Greek word that means eco, uh, which means house, like economics or ecology is the same eco, right? So that kind of that's kind of like a sort of nominative determinism if I've ever heard one, like that kind of proves my point a little bit, not totally, but um, at, the, at the very least, thematically, you know what I mean? Just reading up on chat here to make sure we're not missing any uh, questions. That's for I, sure. I see people like my Maximate knife and my, ta my taste in guns, so um, that's validating. <laughs> that's what I'm saying there is, you know, it, sometimes it's nice to get on, like, 
a little side tangents because it does allow people to kind of bond closer to some of these people that we like. That's one. Of the, that was kind of the aspect of doing this side of the things is to show, you know, we we a lot of these times we have a lot of respect for people like yourselves, but they you know there's always that kind of you know what what other than bugs, it's just you know gentlemen about you know and it's just that. Usually when you find that like a second bonding, you know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. so much easier to become a bigger fan and follower, you know, you know, you know, I guarantee every one of these cats that just, you know, bonded with you on that nice knife issue, gun issue. The next time that you're on, they're going to be like, pest management or not, they're going to be like, oh, that Matt's doing, man. I'm pretty good guy. You know what I'm saying? So it's it's kind of nice to let little things out like there like that. I would have never guessed, to be honest with you. That's one aspect of the, I would have that completely blew me away, to be honest with you. <laughs> it's a soft smoke and demeanor that kind of surprised me. I guess. I actually like it that way. I think that well, I try very hard to not let like my interests like become sort of like a proxy identity. You know, I am not my gun ownership. I'm not my, I'm not even my integrated pest management specialty. You know, I'm, I'm a much more complex entity than just those, those prevailing concepts and things that I like. Um, so that, that's actually a really great thing to hear that sort of tells me that like, that's the case. And honestly, I think that that's sort of how you would want maybe firearms uh, ownership to kind of be like, right? Like, it's not like, oh, I could tell this person's a, this person's a crazy person. He must have a firearm. Like, that's not really the look you want. That's not the, really the culture you want to inspire, at least in my opinion, anyways. Um, I, I'm definitely more of a fan of the, like, yeah, the speak softly, but carry a big stick kind of mentality, the sort of silent professional Although I'm not very silent, I'm way too loquacious for that. Uh, I do appreciate you for uh, toughing out the the bumps throughout the beginning of the show and winging it through uh, not having the chat, that's for sure. It was a little rough to get going. And I guess me as a host, that... uh, I learned a little bit of a lesson today that, uh, you know, don't rely on, don't rely on how smoothly things usually go. I guess I should be having a backup plan just in case, just in case. I definitely agree with that. Um, Would it be possible for us to wrap close to now? It's about to be 11 o'clock my time. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of why I was bringing that up because, yeah. You know, like I said, we did kind of spin our wheels a little bit in the beginning there. And I know I was figuring you for about two hours and we're well past the two hour slot. So I appreciate you for going that extra, you know, after you know things got going. And again, I appreciate you coming on tonight. I appreciate you reaching out the other day when I had a, a blank spot that shows that, you know, you're, you're a great dude, willing to not just help out with the IPM, but just to help out a fellow fellow friend, fellow content creator. It, uh, it shows that uh, you're willing to go that extra mile as a person. So 
thank you very much on, on both aspects of that. And uh, <laughs> again, thank you for being a trooper and toughing out this very, very rough beginning to this episode. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that you were able to. I'm glad you were able to figure it out. Um, that I think I'm glad that the situation resolved itself. Um, and you're very welcome. I'm I'm glad. I like to be kind of. I like to have these sort of more intimate conversations with people that are less professional sometimes. But I do like to find that there's a bit of a balance. I don't want people to know every single thing about me. And now that I've said that on the internet, people are going to go out of the way to do that. But at the same time, I do recognize that it's important to like explicate and give this information out to people. And it's a it's a true passion of mine. I guess the only way to say is that's an earnest thing that I want to do. So I appreciate you being a facilitator for that. Well, you know, you're amazing. Uh wealth of information and again i'm glad you were able to tough it out and you know help me wing it through the beginning of this episode and you know i got tons of respect for you you know the amount of information that you do put out there it's a lot of great information and like i said there's not a lot of people doing what you do and it's it's a shame because it's something that we all struggle with at some point if we like to admit it or not We've all had some IPM issues. And it's nice to know that there's somebody like yourself that is a trustable, that's the key word here, trustable source of knowledge that we can come to. So thank you very much, Matthew. And I uh, hope that we can do this again. I don't like to take advantage of people and, you know, you know, get them on and ask too much of their time. But, you know, again, we have a need for people like you, so I'm sure that uh, we'd like to get you back on again at another point and have some good questions from start to finish, yeah. not just this guy trying to wing it for yeah. a half hour, 45 minutes. <laughs> In that aspect, I'm almost sorry I wasted some of your valuable time. This sort of shows how important chat is, though, I think. And I think that's, uh, I think the acknowledgement is that. And so shout out to chat for being the lifeblood of the conversation. I, I always like interacting with people there. It's really surreal to be able to, and this is sci-fi to me, like growing up in the 90s. Um, like there are people, there are screen names that I recognize um, from other media. It's sort of cool to be like, oh, that's Jack Greenstock. That's, you know, um, Lemon Hoko, I see right here, you know, I, I just think it's really neat. And um, being able to interact with people directly is a blessing, but also it can be a bit of a curse sometimes with like, like you say, with like, even unintentionally, like taking up a, a space and time with other people, we don't really realize how much that other people have on their plate or that kind of thing. I'm still just one person after all. But I'm happy that I've been able to be what you described for a lot of people sort of a trusted resource. And I work very hard to be able to maintain that level of integrity. And I hope that I can continue to maintain it for a long time. And if I have biases, if I'm wrong about something, I hope that I can, you know, gracefully not only just accept it, which I don't have much problem with, but also be able to rectify it and remediate it and send out the corrections of other people, because that's like the really important part, really, is getting that out there. So I appreciate it. 
one more time before you go, can you uh, please get all your contact information out there, mainly your YouTube channel and all that stuff to where they can find just some source information that's out there before they can start asking you questions. Sure. So there are a few places you can find me. Uh, the main place that you can find me is a YouTube channel, Sentinel, which I actually didn't, I don't think I made virtually any comments on the live chat. I was mostly all verbal this time. Um, but I do have the vast majority of my really good integrated pest management content is on my YouTube channel. I specifically think people should look out for my pest primer video series, hashtag, hashtag pest primer and also just my various playlists about different kinds of insects and arthropods and, and, and topics about IPM. You can also find me on Twitter and on Insta, yeah, Instagram at SyncAngel, S-Y-N-C-H-A-N-G-E-L. I post a lot of content on Instagram too. And I follow a lot of really cool ecologists and entomologists and paleontologists and virologists and venomologists and all other really cool scientific disciplines. And I often retweet them and a bunch of other cool things like that cybersecurity guy I was talking about earlier. Um, so if you wanna use Twitter for good, uh, then you can follow me there too. Uh, one last, one last thing. I need that sound bite, uh, Mr. Don't take that sound bite, Mr. <laughs> Matthew Gates. Can I have your sound bite for this episode? It's been a few. It's now 305.25 if you want to throw that on. <laughs> yeah, I do want to. So this is fucking talking shit with Eagle episode 305.25 featuring Matthew Gates. And I'm Matthew Gates, Sentinel Consulting, Integrated Pest Management Specialist. And I hope that I can help you with your problem. Pest today, past tomorrow. What a great logo. Thank you, my friend, and uh, thank you again very much for your time, and uh, I look forward to having another session with you some days, and if you you left out growing with my fellow home growers, oh, how could uh, it Sundays, be so, how could it be so bad? Seven o'clock. That's right. You can source of knowledge every Sunday right there with this gentleman and a great panel as well. Yeah, uh, four o'clock Pacific Standard Time for those on, on my side of the world. Uh, yeah, definitely come in, come in with chat, come in with your questions. Much like this show, the chat runs the, the, the program. So if you have cool questions, you have IPM questions, people will ask or people will answer, including myself. So I'm very happy to be a resource for people uh, weekly, essentially. So that does it for this episode of 305.25 featuring our friend in asset to the community, Matthew Gates. Thank you guys very much for tuning in and toughing it out through the no chat phase of the show. And uh, you guys, as Matthew said, obviously are a huge part of this show. And thank you very much for uh, toughing it out, hanging it out. Greatly appreciate you guys. With that being said, uh, that does wrap up this episode. Remember, random acts of kindness do save lives. Please try to do something nice for somebody. We 